You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. You and I don't know what a foreign invasion is like. The people of Ukraine, they know full well, but you and I, we haven't had this in our lifetimes or our parents' lifetimes. Really, a foreign invasion hasn't really been since maybe the Revolutionary War. You might not even be able to call that a foreign invasion. But the people of the Old Testament times knew foreign invasion full well. Today I'm going to talk about the Midianite invasion of Israel and the great story of a young man named Gideon. Again, found chapters 6 and 7 of the book of Judges. The writer of the book begins the story by telling us that the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And you really have to keep that in mind for the whole book. The Israelites did what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And that was the reason God allowed the Midianites to overrun them for not one, not two, not three, but seven years. Now, what's pretty remarkable is that the ancient Israelites writing their scriptures, they don't seek to transfer the blame to the Midianites. They blame themselves for what has happened to them. The writers assert that the nation of Israel was responsible. The people had disregarded the righteous laws of the Lord. I don't know about you, but I am the king of getting defensive and not fessing up. But here are the ancient Israelites are repenting, so to speak, or at least sorrowful about what they have done. So, the story opens with the Israelites enduring the brutally destructive raids of the camel-mounted Midianites. Now, this is probably, at least in world history, maybe the the first instance of camel-led invasion. Uh, And we'll talk more about that in a little bit, but let me make sure I find myself. The They're invading, they're they're Bedouins who aren't invading, taking over, and holding on to the territory. They come during the harvest time. So for for the seventh summer in a row, they ravage Canaan. They take the crops, the food, they grab it for themselves. And according to the narrative, the power of the Midianites, this is a quote, was so oppressive that the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. The Midianites camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. During one of these raids, young Gideon, our hero failure for this week, was attempting to thresh wheat in a wine press, which I know you guys are in the know. I sure as heck wasn't in the know, but that's not how you thresh wheat. You don't use a a wine press. The only reason he was using a wine press is because he was hiding. Gideon is not so courageous. He's not really a man of valor. He's like me. He's just trying to get by, trying to be safe. So ordinarily, the threshing of wheat was done out in the open on a 
flesh, uh, threshing floor where the animals could move about freely and the wind could carry away the chaff. A method, again, that, we, that cannot be used when the Midianites are around. So Gideon's either trying to pathetically do the job with a little wine press, or he's just yeah hoping that they don't see what he's up to. Now, let's not be too hard on Gideon. It's like I don't want to be too hard on myself. He was apparently a dutiful and hardworking young man. But when you go home and you read the text, you can see that he's not a paragon of religious virtue. Like most other Israelites of that time, he had gone along with the trends in the Canaanite culture that were all around him. I'm just going to say this because it's true, not because I'm trying to be cute or provocative, but we may assume that he took interest in the temple prostitutes. We may assume that he prayed now and then to the fertility statue. We may assume that he swore by the name of Baal on occasion. He knew of his tribal god Yahweh, of course, and said prayers to him too, but all things considered, as we read the text, Yahweh, or better said, because we're Gentiles, Adonai, was this remote figure whose impact on Gideon's daily life felt minimal. Gideon had heard that Israel's God was a jealous God because that was being taught at the time, but he did not really believe it. And we might anachronistically say, like you and me, surely there are many ways to approach the divine that this kind of characterized his life and many of the ancient Israelites' lives. So why not you know, try them all? So Gideon is threshing away at his wine press when suddenly a being materialized in front of him. This being says, The Lord, Adonai, is with you, you mighty man of valor. How many of you know that line? That's like the line I remember from growing up in Sunday school, you mighty man of valor. And since then, I've always thought of Gideon as, oh, Gideon's this mighty man of valor. And then you read the story again, and it's not until he's declared a mighty man of valor that he becomes the mighty man of valor. In fact, he's kind of wimpy before that. Um, And I think this speaks a lot to the way God calls people like you and me righteous when we're not actually so righteous. Gideon's first response is skeptical. He says, My father told me about Adonai, but I don't see him doing anything about these Midianites. This is a quote. If the Lord is with us, where are all his wonderful deeds? Why are all these things happening to us? Isn't that pretty remarkable that the Israelites included this, this man of valor, Gideon? We see his explicit doubts. Even... It comes close to a testing of the Lord. I'm going to read that again. This is a quote. My father told me about Adonai, but I don't see him doing anything about these Midianites. If the Lord is with us, where are all his wonderful deeds? Why are these things happening to us? I don't know about you, but whether out loud or in my head, consciously or unconsciously, this is my prayer all the time. So it's actually kind of nice that... Gideon says this to the angelic being isn't struck down. So the angel of the Lord overlooks Gideon's lack of theological understanding and says to him, Go and save Israel 
out of the hand of Midian. Am I not sending you? Wimpy, hiding, synchronistic in his religious beliefs, he is declared a mighty man of valor. Are not you the one who is to go and save Israel? Again, it's a cliche, but I think it's a helpful one. God equipping the called, not calling the equipped. It's one thing to be told God is nearby. It's quite another to be told that you are going to become God's agent on a dangerous mission. So here, again, an interesting thing happens to Gideon. It's the same thing that happens to all the biblical figures when God encounters them. Think of Moses and the burning bush. Suddenly, Gideon becomes acutely aware of his smallness, his inadequacy. I'm not saying that word right. You know what I'm talking about. And he says, but Lord, how can I save Israel? My tribe is the weakest, and I am the least in my family. In the presence of God, all of his and all of our posturing, all of our masks of virtue, all of our various defenses that I just said I'm so good at, they shrivel up and fall away. We've already, I've been saying amazing over and over again, being redundant, but isn't it amazing that God's immediate response is one of assurance? The Lord answered Gideon, I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as though they were one man. Again, Gideon is not in the least a mighty man of valor until God says it's so. But he is going to become one now. And I think one of the things we can really glean from this is that God isn't going to allow us always to keep him at a remote and pious distance from himself. This remote and pious distance that suits us. God just like I said in the sermon, is capable of invading our lives and commandeering us into his service at any point. And that's what happens with Gideon. Gideon's response to all this shows his rapid group of faith, right? We just said a second ago, he believed in lots of gods. He's probably doing things he really shouldn't be doing. He's part of the reason The author of the book of Judges says they did what was evil in their eyes. So what does Gideon do? He has this rapid growth of faith, but he's also got spiritual immaturity. And this is the part of the story from Sunday school that we all hopefully know as well. He says, wait here. I need a sign that what you say is true. So he he runs off. He gets an offering of meat and bread, and the angel of the Lord waits patiently. Gideon brings the gifts places them on a flat stone, and the angel sends the offerings up in flames. Gideon, at this point, you know, he's already kind of aware of his or his smallness. He is overcome with awe and fear and cries out that he knows he's going to die because he has gotten close to the blazing majesty of God. But once again, the voice of God speaks gently to him, Peace be with you. Fear not. You shall not die. Now, you, you and I, we know our Bibles, or at least people of the Advent do. If you don't, it's okay, because even I'm trying to figure the Bible out. But oftentimes, the first thing, the very first thing the angel says when the angel encounters a human is, fear not. 
but we don't oftentimes take time to think about what it means. The sudden appearance of God, you know, it's, it's kind of like what I was talking about in the sermon in, um, on cards with angels, right? The angels are very cute. Everything is, and I'm not saying there's anything necessarily wrong with that, but if you look in the scriptures, when an angel, when an angelic being comes, people are terrified. They are mortified. That's the first thing they've got to say is, don't be afraid. The sudden appearance of God in the lives of human beings is terrifying at first, as we see in scripture. We cannot stand at God's presence without God's permission. Think of Moses in the cleft of the rock. That is what the Lord offers Gideon. So Gideon here, he's strengthened by the angel's commission, and he's newly appointed as a mighty man of valor that he wasn't two seconds ago. He goes and prepares to do the business of the Lord. The Midianites are busy too. They have crossed the Jordan River. They are getting ready with their camels to do what they've been doing for the past six years, which is take what isn't theirs and leave the Israelites with nothing. So they pitch their tents by the thousands, in the valley of Jezreel. And this is when the story gets kind of, again, memorable and interesting. Gideon calls up troops from the various tribes of Israel. Remember, he said a second ago, I'm from the weakest tribe. It's as if nobody knows me. I'm kind of a wimp. He's proclaimed, he's imputed to be the mighty man of valor, and now all of a sudden, he's bringing people from all the tribes, troops from all the tribes. And we can tell he's still nervous because he keeps asking God to give him more signs, right? He, we already had the, the first instance of the signs, but he keeps on asking him. He, he takes his sheepskin jacket and asks God to put some dew on it, and God does. And then the next night, he's, you know, then he have one more. Uh, he, asked, he, he, he asked God essentially to put dew everywhere except on the sheepskin. And again, instead of taking this as testing God, God has forbearance with Gideon. God goes along with what you might call foolishness very patiently. But it's foolishness that I, I mean, if I was going to go up, I mean, I'm not trying to fight anybody, but if I'm just like told out of the blue, I'm yeah, an angelic being that might be, but I'm still going to doubt it and want reassurance. That's what he's going for. But then again, but keep in mind, this mighty man of valor is what God makes him, not who he is. Then early in the morning, we are told Gideon and all his 32,000 men camped at the spring of Herod. And the Lord said to him, you have too many men. What? I mean, we're trying to fight these people who've been ravaging us. And the Lord says, too much. And why does he say that, that Israel has too much? In order that Israel may not boast against me, that he, his own strength has saved her. Announce to the people, anyone who is afraid may leave. Uh, 32,000 people. Anyone who is afraid may leave. Thousands leave. I'm surprised 22,000 stay behind. So only 10,000 leave at this point. Now, I'm not going to go over every detail of the story, but if you read chapter 6 and 7, you see that God reduces their numbers still further by various interesting means. And then by the end of it, there are only 300 soldiers remaining. So much for our preoccupation with size and numbers. God here works with a small group. And if we look throughout the scriptures, we see this all over. God working with small numbers. Gideon and the 300, Jesus and the 12, a few nuns in El Salvador, 
a handful of human rights activists in Guatemala, a few hundred black people boycotting buses, small prayer groups, Bible study groups, small bands of committed Christians. Why does God work like this? I don't know if we know the full story, but what St. Paul says is that God's way is to demonstrate that his power is made perfect in weakness. And as we read a second ago, so that they know that this is not by their own hand, that this is a work that I am doing. God gave Gideon one more sign before the battle in order to uphold him in his weakness. And again, I think that God does this for us as well. As night fell, God said, Go down into the Midianite camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So Gideon and his servant, they sneak down the hill into the midst of the Midianites. And you can visualize this in like a movie, him you know, essentially trying to not trip over any tents in the dark, not make too much noise. Um, and he, he's amongst them in their camp. They're spread out below. And as they're making their way, they hear outside of a tent a voice. And this is what one man is saying to another. He's had a dream. And in the dream, a loaf of barley bread came rolling into the Midianites' camp and knocked over one of the tents. So Gideon here, he's eavesdropping outside. He knew what this meant. The people of Israel are a wheat-growing people. They were going to get the best of the tent-dwelling Midianites. Isn't this fascinating? Uh, a dream a Midianite has that's been used to essentially affirm Gideon to say, the Lord, we are going to have the day by the Lord's power. When Gideon heard the dream, he also, this is where we see his transformation a little bit. He does a noteworthy thing. He's not you know, fist pumping his servant. He's not, you know, whatever. What he does right away is he falls down on his knees, much like when he realizes his inadequacy before the angel. He's in the middle of the enemy camp and he gives thanks. Um, yeah, instead of thinking about you know, what I might think about if I was in his shoes, glory or money or endorsements. He worships God and then returned to the camp of Israel and he calls out, get up. The Lord has given the Midianites into our hands. Again, maybe this is a cliche, but not a word about himself. What he's talking about is what God is up to. God is the one who's making a way where there seems to be no way. So stirred, the 300 men take up their trumpets and torches covered by earthenware jars. The Midianites were asleep in the valley, obviously expecting no trouble from the weak Israelites. When all of a sudden, on the signal from Gideon, all 300 break their jars so that the torches flared out like explosions in the dark and all the trumpets sounded at the same time. From the hills around the Midian camp, the mysterious flame-lit company descended as if from the sky accompanied by unearthly, unearthly deafening blasts from the ram's horn trumpets. The terrified Midianites and their stampeding camels fled from the valley in a panic, and the battle was won without so much as a strike of the sword. Why do I go into such detail with that? The genre suggests there are legendary features to this text, but the point is unmistakable. 
God is invincible. His purposes will be accomplished. Those who serve him cannot be overcome. He's not bound to the great and powerful, but chooses to work with the small, the weak, and the insignificant. People, or as the title of this course suggests, failures, though all of us, we might be failures, but we're not entirely defined by that. Failures like Gideon. I mean, think about this. If God, God working in the small places, think about, um, I mean, think about the city in the, in the 60s where black children uh, against the hoses and dogs of the sheriff and the police force. Think about even things that seem in vain. The one student in Tiananmen Square who's standing in front of a tank. Uh, think about Nelson Mandela and his dark cell. Who would have thought this man in prison would become the president of his country? What are the torches and earthenware jars of Gideon against the Midianites? The point of this story, the point of highlighting Gideon, is that the power of God confounds the powerful of the earth. And the most striking feature is not so much the explosive elements of them coming down the hill and scaring the Midianites half to death. It's Gideon's humility before the commanding presence, power, and purpose of God. So before I end, before I raise it to any kind of questions or comments, I'm going to tell you a more recent story by a man, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Many of you know him who taught on Gideon. So you, I'm going to say a little bit for those of you who might not know him. In 1933, in Germany, when the Nazis were coming to power in large numbers and, resisting, and the, the, the Christian church resisting the Nazis in Germany was, was pretty small, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is there. He's one of the 20th century martyrs who we celebrate. On the day before the Reichstag fire in Berlin. Do you guys all remember that story? 1933, this is when Hitler really consolidates all his power. The day before, Bonhoeffer preaches about Gideon, and his students write that they never forgot it. He wrote this. Do not desire to be strong, powerful, honored, and respected, but let God alone be your strength your fame, and your honor. Gideon, who achieved faith in fear and doubt, kneels with us here before the altar of the one and only God. And Gideon prays with us, our Lord on the cross, be thou our one and only Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at Advent Birmingham.